Good morning. It's nice to be back here. Haven't been here in a while, and uh, it's a wonderful place to be after having one of those moments yesterday before my talk. I'm going to digress because um, I'm really glad to be here after having two moments yesterday in my life where my humanism was on fire. How many of you have ever had a humanistic moment of fire in your heart? Yesterday, I finished Madeleine Albright's new book, Fascism, A Warning, and I had to pull over and cry through that last chapter. And then I listened to it again, and I cried some more. That evening, yesterday, last night, we went to see the Fred Rogers movie, and I cried through the whole thing. My humanism is on fire. We Unitarian Universalists know a lot about a lot of things. We are some of the best educated and most well-informed people on the planet. Small groups of us could form teams and dominate the game Jeopardy for weeks. <laughs> amen? Yep, amen? All right. We can do the New York Times crossword puzzle in ink. Raise your hand if you're one of them. Come on. Don't be shy. I knew you were here. We know what president sign, what legislation, and who was there at the signing, and who got the pens. Right there, I see you nodding. Knitting and nodding right there in the front row. We can debate the details of literary criticism while underscoring textual inconsistencies. When we Unitarian Universalists learn about a topic, we let you know. We quote statistics. We blog, we post, we organize book clubs. When we learn about horrific injustices, like many of us have learned in reading The New Jim Crow, we are outraged, and we want to do something. We want to have a meeting, a forum, an action. We're idealists and pragmatists and dreamers who have organized for reform and change throughout the history of our Unitarian and Universalist movements. When we learn about causes and study the issues deeply and work to transform society for the better, we too believe we are for the better. But friends, Sometimes our frenetic intellectual acumen or our articulate righteous indignation causes us to miss some things. The late Unitarian Universalist Reverend Carl Winstrom wrote when describing the biblical scene in which Jesus is carrying the cross to Calvary, he said, the first liberal is there helping Jesus, but when the cross was placed in the ground, and Jesus was nailed upon it, the liberal was not there. Perhaps he was off trying to get a stay of execution, or maybe a reversal of the conviction, 
or planning for the future of support of Jesus' family, or the burial arrangements, or getting up a petition to Rome to talk about the irresponsibility of Pilate. The liberal wasn't there. Now the point he makes is that we liberals are often absent at the point of the crucifixion, the point of the horror, the point of the actual oppression, the time of personal suffering, the time of the greatest pain, and the moments when all seems lost. Sometimes we get so caught up in the electric energy of our intellect and our passion that we forget the significance, the fundamental importance of just being with people. Therefore today, I will not give you a book report on prison reform or facts from the Bureau of Prison Statistics you can look up on your own. Instead, I want you to come with me and try ever so hard to live out our first principle and frame those words in a love that you may not fully recognize or understand, a love that you may not know that you have within you, a love that is complicated, frustrating, and perhaps even annoying. Come with me to my first day as a chaplain behind the wall of Stateville Maximum Security Men's Prison in Illinois. It was the Monday after Illinois Governor George Ryan offered a reprieve to each of the men on death row. Many people have been dying without being guilty. He did the right thing. The men who were waiting to die in Illinois went from Pontiac Max to Stateville Max, and I was to provide chaplain support during this momentous transfer along the cornfields of Illinois in a bus. As the ankle chains clanked over every bump we hit on that road, these prisoners shared how angry they were about leaving death row. Hey, chaplain, I've been on death row preparing to die for 10 years. You gonna help me live now? I'm sitting at the front of the bus, listening. Hey, chaplain, you know on death row we get to take a shower every day. General Pop, we get to take one every week. What you gonna do about that, chaplain? Hey, chaplain, they said I can't have all my law books with me in general population. What's your guy gonna do about that? I listened, perplexed and bewildered, and began to have this crazy kind of love in me that I was finding very annoying. It was a love that was unexpected, rough, and raw. It was at the foot of the crucifixion with all the blood and the sweat and the oppression and poverty and murder spilling all over me. Then day one was over. Day two. <laughs> the building was gray and ominous and smelled of a harsh cleanser that lingered in my nose and burned my nose. My second day assignment was in the receiving and classification unit. There was limited electricity and running water. It was January, and in many of the cells I could feel the breeze pass, 
pass into the hallway from the window slits into the cells and out into all of the unit. Instead of the traditional bars found on the doors of the regular units, there were steel doors with little patches up top to look through the door. But the officers covered them up. So they just yelled through the door to the inmates. However, I said, I've got to see their faces. I am the chaplain. So I got down on my hands and knees, a task that I rarely enjoy, on concrete, and I looked through the chuck hole where the food goes, and I said, hey, there you are. And then the guy would do the same thing, and they would lay down on their side, and we'd be able to talk face to face with nothing between us through the chuck hole about this big. As I slid on my butt from cell to cell, I began to hear their stories, their grievances, their hopes, their shame, their lies, their duplicitousness, their stories, and their loves. After talking with nearly 30 men on this unit over the course of the day, I discovered that most of them were from the same four or five zip codes in Chicago, the poorest sections of the city. The question that most of them asked, though, however, was, what time is it? What time is it? What day of the week? See, in receiving a classification, they it's sort of like Gitmo, they deprive you of all kinds of resources and understanding. You stay in your cell 23 hours a day, and they're trying to figure out what kind of person you're going to be in prison so they can classify you into a unit. It's where you break somebody when they come in. But they need to see a chaplain, too. With the present entirely out of their control, they were desperate to keep track of the passage of time. And I remember there were little plastic wallet-sized cards in the chaplain office provided by the Salvation Army, and they had a calendar on one side and that footprints on the sand poem on the other. So I told the men on the unit, I'm going to come right back. I'm going to go and get them some calendars. And we're going to start with today's date and time, and now we can all start to make a clock. And when I returned, I announced, chaplain on the wing, which is what I'm supposed to say in that tone of voice. And uh, as a narrow window lit up the hallway in the hazy glow, it was in this cart as I walked in, right down the middle, the 13 steel gray doors on each side, all of a sudden I saw hands coming out of all these chuck holes, hands and arms, dismembered from a human being's face, but just hands and arms, mostly black and brown, some white, extending a whole, the whole length of the corridor, reaching out from the chuck hole. It was surreal. As I handed out the calendars, awe and love and loathing made a stew in my heart, a messy stew, a love stew that I could barely recognize. And it was made of our first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of all people. These people are worthy of dignity. Now, at Stateville, which I ended up being there for a long time, ended up working in prisons, jails, every kind of joint, as we call them, around in Illinois over a period of 10 years. In all those places, I met the mentally ill, straight-up hood rats, straight-up dangerous people, the addicted, and men who had made one bad decision on one bad night, and people who were just likely to be there because of their color and poverty. 
I visit people in segregation and I spend time with those who have abused and assaulted and stolen from and murdered other people. Most of them had also been abused and assaulted by someone else. I learned that hurt people hurt people. I told people that their, I was the, the notification chaplain. I told people that their mother, their spouse, their son had died. I was surrounded by concrete and barbed wire and weird power dynamics with officers. I was surrounded by suffering. I could not get away from it. And I was at the base of that crucifixion. One of my favorite pastoral care and counseling authors, Howard Kleinball, once wrote, for many people, life is like one long surgical operation without anesthesia. This is doubly true in prison. In addition to the messed up lives of many of the people that end up in prison, we also have a bureaucratic criminal justice system that is broken and ineffective on many levels. It's often full of many great people with big hearts who want to do good and serve good, but they can't do it because the system's too large, too powerful, too overwhelming. I continued to work in jails and prisons and practicing the ministry of presence, but I could not change. I had to learn, and I learned this from a nun. Because as curious as it is, liberals aren't doing chaplaincy work in prison. It's the evangelicals and the Catholics that show up there. I haven't seen a Unitarian in a prison the whole time I worked in all the prisons I worked in. I barely see a Presbyterian. But the Catholics and the evangelicals show up. I was a rarity in that place. But I could not change an unfair sentence. I could not change the interactions with the prison guards who often would lock me on units with absolutely insane people and think it was funny. I couldn't change that dynamic that they were burnt out too, those officers, from too much forced overtime and not enough training. I couldn't change the fact that you're locked in a 12 by 6, 23 in 1, with a roommate who never sleeps or never shuts up. I could not take away their pain, fix their lives, or make them people treat them better. I could not change the rules, even though I subverted them many times. I could not challenge, change the system. I could only be here, a person offering love and light in a very dark place. And I have to know somewhere in the depths of my own soul, I had to learn this, that my love stew, our first principle, that simmers at the foot of the crucifixion is enough. I asked a nun once who was working in a prison, I said, when I first started out, I said, how can you work on the inside? I, was, I used to be, you know, an activist, yeah, yeah, out in the street about prison stuff. But then I go into prison, and I'm trying to do this on the outside, and I couldn't do it. I was going nuts. I said, sister, how can you do this? She says, you work on the inside or the outside. No one can do both. So I left the activist world for many years and just remained inside. Sometimes at Stateville, it was enough to ask, what's on your heart today, brother? That was my, my catchphrase. Because if I sit on the chapel, they tell me to go to hell. I said, well, I don't believe in hell. You know, so. <laughs> And then I started to have more friends because you'd be surprised how many people in prison really are Unitarian Universalists. <laughs> many. I had a whole church. It was enough that I crossed 
the yellow line, though. It was enough that I crossed the yellow line and didn't say I was the chaplain, I'm not here to save you or do nothing special. It was enough that I crossed that yellow line that I was told to stand on so that they cannot reach arm's length at me. If I stood on that yellow line, I wasn't going to have a relationship or a ministry of presence. I had to cross that line, go right up to the cell, and shake that brother's hand. Instead, I took that side of love. That's standing on the side of love with those who were considered unlovable. Working on the inside required me to choose love, and some days I'm not really sure what that looked like. One of the images that helps me practice love is the experience of remembering. I don't mean remembering as a terms of nostalgia or reminiscence of the past or something we do in our brains, but the remembering as returning people to membership or bringing people into community or something that we do in our hearts and our guts. People in prison are often a forgotten people. People that get mail have status in prison. People that don't have none. It means there's no one out there looking out for them. Guys would share their letters with each other and say, act like this letter was written to you. That was currency in prison, love. Many of them were cut off from their families. They have been removed from the communities. They are known primarily for the most awful thing that they have done. How many of you want to be remembered by the worst thing you did? But is the rest of their humanity discounted as irrelevant because of what they deserve? When I remember people, when I build relationships and community with them as I did in prison, I am acknowledging the actuality of their life and affirming their humanity, their existence. I'm listening to their stories and I'm experiencing them as people, as children of the holy. They may, might be some really messed up people of the holy, but still they are family. They are brothers and our sisters, our moms, our dads, and our children. And when we remember them, we bring them back into the membership of the humanity that we all love so much. They're part of us. 90% of people in prison are going to get out. <laughs> How we treat them inside makes a difference. It's like Martin Luther King Jr. said in one of his sermons, in the final analysis, I must not ignore the wounded man on life's Jericho Road because he is a part of me and I am part of him. His agony diminishes me and his salvation enlarges me. One of the side effects, though, of remembering is that when we bring people into community, we are changed. That's one of the reasons it's so hard to reach out beyond what we know, beyond our own comfort zones, because it changes us. Think of it in terms of your own experiences. Who have you deemed unlovable in your life? I know you all have. Who have you discarded and said, trash to me? What prison are you in when no one else will visit you? True relationships have to acknowledge that there is an in-between. I am me, you are you, I have my experiences, perspectives, and your, your ways of being in the world, and you have yours, but there's an in-between that sometimes looks like an ocean, but we must intentionally choose to stand on the edge of that ocean, at least for a while as we think about crossing or even getting our feet wet. These relationships are not going to be perfect, nor should they be. 
I had complicated and painful relationships with those men in Stateville. I could tell you stories. It's like the Leonard Cohen song that says, ring the bells that still can ring, forget your perfect offering, there is a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in. That's how the light got in. It wasn't perfect. Despite and perhaps because it was hard, we need to remember and to be remembered. One of my favorite hymns in Unitarian Universalist hymnal is come sing a song with me. Now I'm a terrible singer so I'm not gonna sing. But come sing a song with me, come sing a song with me, come sing a song with me that I might know your mind. Not that I might change your mind, not that I might fix your mind, but or convert you in any way, or give answers to your mind, but that I might know your mind. I might know your mind. I would leave the prison and have to go to the library because I got to know these minds of men who have read everything in the last 20 years they get their hands on and who stumped me. And I was going to the University of Chicago at the time. They stumped me because I wanted to get to know their mind. And I bring you hope, not just by knowing you, by singing with you and being with you, but by spending time with you, authentic time with you. I will bring you hope when hope is hard to find, and I will bring you song of love and a rose in the wintertime. When things are dark and dreary and the days are short and the nights are long and the sky is gray and cold, singing with you and knowing you, remembering you will bring you hope and love and add a little color to your day. I'm not bringing you any answers, I said to the brothers there. I'm not bringing you knowledge or wisdom or solutions. I'm bringing you a rose in the wintertime, some color in the bleakness, some warmth in the cold. Come walk in the rain with me, the song says. Come walk in the rain with me. We may get wet. Our mascara may run. And our hair's going to get messy and we won't look pretty, but I want to know your mind. Also notice that this song is not a one-time ask. The song repeats the ask three times. Come dream a dream with me. Come dream a dream with me. A dream with me. Come dream a dream with me. There is a certain stubbornness here, a certain persistence to build that bridge of remembering one another. In Chicago, there's a program that I got started with some other folks for guys coming home from prison, and we call them new citizens. Instead of ex-cons, ex-felons, all that stuff, we said, no, they're new citizens. Remembering them into community, remembering them into humanity, remembering them into existence that's worthy of another human being's touch. And since three is one of those, you know, biblical stuff, they always get into little threes, mean something, but it, it, it's, it pretends an experience of change and transformation. And I wonder if this gracious serendipity as well is happening when we remember someone. The central act of caring in ministry is to be an authentic relationship. It's not about fixing people or saving people. It's not about rescuing folks from their lives. It's about hearing and seeing in relatedness. Now, before I take my seat, you know, that's an old black preacher's device I just did there. <laughs> then they talk for another hour or so. <laughs> no, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. But I really want to hone something in on you here. 
This is an affront to the idea that we need to save the world and a call instead to enter the world of care and compassion. Because that is where the power of our Unitarian and Universalist and Humanist principles shine the most brightly and most unequivocally. I would remind my friends in prison often of a quote from Rabbi Abraham Joshua Herschel, that, and he said, remember that there is a meaning beyond absurdity. Be sure that every little deed counts, that every work has power. Never forget that you can still do your share to redeem the world in spite of all the absurdities and frustrations and disappointments. So, my first Unitarian Society friends, I ask you not to run. Don't hide. Let us begin right now today. Let us challenge the status quo of that yellow line that we're always standing on. Let us challenge the indifference of liberal tolerance talking points. Let us remember the others as yours. Come and sit with me. Don't flinch. Come and sit with me. Don't run away. Don't turn away. Don't ignore me. Come and sit with me at the foot of today's crucifixion. Don't run. Don't hide. Don't flinch. Come and care and sing a song with me. <laughs> 